Welcome to the Cowie Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about Cowie, including in our gathering times, visit us online at cowie.church. Enjoy the message. You know, it's been a, a joy to be walking through the scriptures together as we uh, have been uh, just navigating uh, verse by verse, really, through uh, a, a good portion of scripture as we uh, use our, our reading plan and just kind of connect along the way. If you uh, are just joining us today, we're so grateful for your uh, presence with us. And you can find a copy of our churchwide reading plan uh, at the exit. You can find that online uh, inside the church app. And what we've been doing is taking a, a passage from a reading plan that we're in and walking through that uh, as we journey together. And so uh, we find ourselves today in Leviticus chapter number 16, and we're going to also be working in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and 10. And so we invite you to kind of find your place uh, there this morning. And as I've read through just this uh, beautiful picture, really through the the end of uh, Exodus this week, and as we've uh, read in just some key spots in Leviticus, there's been this thought that has come to my mind throughout all the reading, and it's this thought of access. And we, we live in a culture where um, it's kind of a celebrity culture where if you go to a concert, you'll find the ability that you can spend some extra money and you can get an all-access pass. And this all-access pass will allow you to go behind the scenes and you can take your phone out and you can do a selfie with whoever the artist is and you can spend uh, some time in that direction. I I Googled just a few prices just to see what that looked like and uh, you can get a backstage pass to hang out with Justin Bieber for only $1,710. You can spend some time, right? I I saw one for the Eagles that was $4,500, John Mayer, five grand. And so when you go to one of these concerts or when you're in a a place like that and you see somebody with an all-access pass, you can know a couple of things. One is that maybe they work for them and they could care less about hanging out with them, right? Because they understand that they're just ordinary people just like us. Or uh, maybe you see somebody that spent some money on that. And you can see by the level of excitement, by how, uh, how seriously they've taken these moments and the time that they're getting to spend a little bit about that. But you know, when I read these kind of things, I'm thinking, you know, the cost of access is way greater than I'm paying, right? And I want to talk to us today about the cost of access. The cost of access not to some celebrity or to uh, some singer, but access to the very throne room of heaven. Access to the great God of heaven and earth. And I want to talk to you about the cost of that access today. And I want to talk to you about our response in light of all that has been paid. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful, Lord, to be able to gather be able to worship you, Father, and Lord, we pray today, Lord, that you would remind us, Lord, as we look at your word, all that it cost for sinful humanity, Lord, to be redeemed. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to leave here different. God, that we would never take for granted the access that's been given to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we might live in light of that today and tomorrow, and Lord, that we might be your church 
Lord, we love you. We pray if there's someone here that's never looked upon the finished work of the cross of Calvary and repented of their sin, God, we pray that today you would convict in the power of your spirit that you would draw, and Lord, that there might be some that pass from death to life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love for us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, we uh, looked at the Ten Commandments. We spent a little bit of time there. Hopefully, you have memorized those now, and you've you've worked with our our little fun way of doing that. If you missed that, you can catch that uh, last week. And as we left last week, we saw that God had given them uh, his law, and we've read this week of God's desire and his way uh, that he would dwell with the people. He had given Moses instruction on how he was to build uh, this tabernacle. He was to uh, build it in a certain way. There was a detailed pattern. If you've been following through this reading and and he, he asked the people, he said, hey, you're going to build it this way. It's going to take these materials. And he asked the people uh, to contribute those things. There were people that God had gifted uh, to be able to build and to be able to work. And so we see uh, just this congregational piece even of that. And, and, and throughout this time, what we saw often was that God would meet with Moses, right? Moses would go up the mountain and the people would stay back. The people uh, would not be able to be in the presence of the Lord. We see Moses was a mediator, right? He was the mediator in in that time that God had chosen to stand before God for the people. And so the people would stay back, right? It was uh, the holiness of God was too much, right? It was too dangerous for them to be in the presence of God uninvited. It it was too dangerous for them to be in the presence of God uninvited. Tone for. And so we see this instruction of the tabernacle and there was a, a building that was to be built, a tent that was to be built. And in uh, this tent, there were two uh, sections, right? We see that it's divided into two rooms. You may see a picture of that uh, even on the screen, just a, a drawing of that. And there was a, in those two rooms, there was one uh, which was, was called the holy place. And in this holy place, you would find the, the table of showbread. You'd find a, a golden lampstand. Lamp you'd find the altar of incense. You'd find those kind of things. And then uh, between that, right, there was a, a holy of holies. Right between that, there was a veil that separated this area in the tabernacle. And so there was this instruction there that in this place, in the holies of holies, this was where the ark of the covenant would be placed. Now, as a sign of the covenant that God had given, uh, as a sign of this covenant, he had the Israelites to build this box. And so he would uh, have them build this box according to his design. It would be overlaid uh, with gold. There would would be this uh, place that the Ten Commandments, that the stones of the Ten Commandments, that those tablets would go. Uh, this box you see in Scripture, it's referred to as an ark. Uh, it gives some instructions on the wood that it's made of. It's made of acacia wood. It's, it's overlaid with gold. And in uh, the inner sanctum, right, in the holies of holies, this is where uh, this ark was to be housed. And in this place, right, we, we would see uh, some really incredible things take place. And we would see God painting a picture, a shadow of something that was to come. So this chest, it's known as the Ark of the Covenant. It's placed in the holies of holies. Uh, Hebrews 9, 4 gives us some insight on some other things that were placed in there. So uh, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, 
and Aaron's rod, which budded. We read about that in Numbers 16 and 17, uh, and the tables of the covenant. So it's interesting when we see the things that were to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant, that they had some uh, great meaning to them, that they represented God's provision, but they also represented man's rebellion against him, right? When we see the tables of the law, it would have reminded them, right? right? We, we read this week of, of here Moses comes down off the mountain, right? And there's idol worship that's being, uh, that's taking place, right? And we see this crazy response. It's one of the funnier lines to me. They're like, yeah, we just threw in all this gold and out popped a calf, right? It sounds like I'm just thinking, and we make terrible excuses, right? But they're reminded of that kind of moment, right? They're reminded of Korah's rebellion, right? They're reminded uh, of that with Aaron's rod. They're reminded uh, of the, the manna, right? As God had provided for them. But in that, they're also reminded of their grumbling and their complaining. And they're reminded of those kind of things. But here in the Holies of Holies, we see this Ark of the Covenant. And in that, we're reminded that God loves justice, right? We're reminded that, that in that... There is justice, but there's something else uh, that is in that place. And it reminds us that we have a God of mercy, right? On top of the Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat, right? There's the mercy seat that is above the Ark of the Covenant. And you might wonder, you say, why is it that it was called the mercy seat? Why is it that that was there? And when we read the scriptures and we look even in these passages that we'll look at today, we're reminded that our sin demands punishment, that we have a holy God, that the law or these tablets, they, they were the standard of right and wrong. And we live in a world that says, hey, there is no absolute truth and there is no absolute morality, but we have a God who defines truth. We have a God who uh, is uh, holy. We have a God who has given us the standard of right and wrong, and he's given it to us in his word. And as we saw last week, the law reveals to us that we are sinners. The law was our schoolmaster, our tutor, and it reveals to us our need of a savior. And so here the law is under the mercy seat and it is reminding us, it is condemning us. And as I shared, there's this inner veil that separates hung between the holy place and the holies of holies. And we read uh, in, in the last part of Exodus and we read in Leviticus of all these instructions. And there was consecration that had to take place of, for the priests, right? There were specific garments that they had to wear. There were uh, specific things that they were to do. There were burnt offerings that they would uh, offer each morning and evening. We read of all these details and we are reminded in the Old Testament times that that Israel had a, a priesthood and this priesthood represented them before God. And, and it was this priesthood that had access. And we read uh, as we get into Leviticus and we look at some of the things that are there and some of you have started a reading plan and you've gotten like Genesis, Exodus, and then you've been like, whoa, all right? You've, you've seen all these, uh, these, these details and all these things, right? We see in Leviticus, right, that the Lord dwelt among Israel in the tent of meeting. And, and so when we pick up in Leviticus and we read about all these things, we've got to understand their time at Mount Sinai, uh, that from the time that they arrived to the time that they left, there was like a year uh, that was in that time. And so during that time, right, this uh, tabernacle has been built. And we read in Leviticus of, of how this tabernacle, right, and we would see that this tabernacle would stand uh, at the center of the camp's tribal arrangement, right? 
It was the center of all these things. And the Lord, in order for him to reside, right, with Israel, in order for God to reside with him, it was imperative. And we see that God was serious about their holiness. We see that it was, it was, God was serious that they would maintain a holy character and that they would uh, have this behavior that was correct before them. And so Israel is instructed, right? The purpose of Leviticus is to instruct them in this holiness so that the Lord might abide among them, that the Lord might bless them, that the Lord might uh, work in the midst. And so we see words like holiness and we see God's holiness. And then we see words like clean and unclean. And there's all these instructions on how once someone was unclean, what they had to do to be clean. And they constantly remind us uh, that we don't measure up to being able to be in the presence of God, right? Then we read words like sacrifice and there's these holy offerings, right? That are, are, are given, right? That are presented uh, to God. We read of of the atonement, right? That it takes place. And there's this means that, that of reconciliation, right? Between God and his people. And we're going to lean more into that as we go along. But once a year, so we've got this tabernacle that's built. There's this veil that has separated uh, the holy place from the holies of holies. And then once a year, we would see that the priest, right? The high priest, would enter in through the veil, right? The scripture refers to it as the day of atonement. And that's what we're going to look at in Leviticus chapter number 16. So we come into this moment, right? We're reminded that sin demands punishment because we have a God who is just. We have a God who is holy. And all of Leviticus 16 speaks of uh, this, this day of atonement, right? Of this moment uh, that would take place every single year. It gives us details of how this day would look. It gives us details and instructions of how this would be a, a yearly thing. It would be a, an annual memorial. And we're going to pick up in verse 6 of Leviticus 16. And the scripture says this, Then Aaron shall offer the bull for a sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. And so I want you to see that before the high priest could go in and make offering for the people that he had to make an offering for himself, that there had to be a bull that was sacrificed for his sin, right? So Aaron is the first high priest. He, his family, uh, his family line, they served as priests until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And so we would see him uh, sacrifice this bull. He would take some of the bull that had been killed and he would place, uh, he would go inside the curtain. He would sprinkle some of that uh, on the, the kind of the front side of the mercy seat. And as we see these kind of things, right, we, we, we see the seriousness of him entering into the holies of holies. I was talking to my father-in-law just a bit about it last night, and I asked him, I said, what do you think of when you think of the Day of Atonement or you think of this moment? And he said, you know, the Jewish tradition that, and, and the Jewish leg, legends really that say that Aaron would enter in and that these high priests would, would have a rope that was wrapped around their waist or around their feet and that they would have bells on them. And it was such a holy moment and such a moment that if things were not done correctly and they went in there uh, without the proper preparation, right, that they would die and that they would hear those bells stop ringing and those, the other priests could pull them out of that area, right? We read even in the early part of Leviticus 16 uh, where Aaron's son had come with strange fire, right? And there's a seriousness about the holiness of God, right? And when we think about the access that we have to the very throne room of heaven, right? There's a, there, there's a, there's a, a reality, right? That we are in a new covenant, right? And we experience the grace of God, but there's a holiness, right? That we never need to forget about our great God. Verse seven, he says, he shall take two goats 
and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell, making it a sin offering. Now you say, why is it that there's two goats that are sacrificed? Why is it that all this is taking place? And the author of Hebrews would tell us that this is a shadow, right, of the things that would come in what Christ would do, right? That there would be a sacrifice that Christ would make to set us free. And, and then in the picture of the scapegoat, there, there's this picture of the, sim, the symbolism of God removing our sins and separating as far as the east is from the west, right? That there's this removal and taking away of sin. And so this word scapegoat, like we know it, right? It's when one person does something wrong, right? And somebody else is the scapegoat. And so the innocent person pays the price for what somebody else did. And we refer to them as the scapegoat. So we see that kind of reference there, right? So the scapegoat in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it just really means the goat that departs. And so there's this sacrifice goat. There's this goat that's, that's identified for the Lord. It's chosen to be the one that will be the blood offering. It's sacrificed. If you, uh, if you look in verse uh, nine, uh, you'll see that it's sacrificed at the altar and the, the priest, as he had before with the, uh, the bull offering, would take some of the blood of this slain goat and he would enter the most holy place where he would sprinkle the blood. And so this, 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 uh, this uh, ritual uh, atonement had two results, right? The people's impurities were removed from the holy place and the sins of the people were forgiven. And so when we lean into this, like we're like, man, this is kind of, like I'm, I get the whole Jesus thing, but like what's going on here? So just hang on, right? So the shed blood of this goat, right? The shed blood of a lamb is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And then the priest would take this scapegoat and he would take both of his hands and place them on the head of this scapegoat and he would confess all the sins of the people that, that he would stand before and he would acknowledge the, the, the cold people's need for forgiveness. There, th this, this picture of him resting his hands on this animal's head, it, it indicates symbolically, right, that the sins of the people had been transferred to this scapegoat. And then there was a designated person that would take this scapegoat and, and he would lead it out of the camp and he would take it out and, and drive it out into the wilderness. And there's this picture, right, of it is carrying away the sins of the people. So God looks on this slain lamb, right? He looks on this, the blood of this lamb as a substitute for all of the sinners, right? That were trusting in that sacrifice. So there's this lamb that is slain. There's this blood that is poured out. There's this offering that is made. And God looks on the blood of this slain lamb and it is a substitute for the sinners that are trusting in the sacrifice. And for what they experienced for another year, they experienced mercy. For another year, they didn't get what they deserved, right? That's what we see in this passage. They deserve punishment, right? But there's a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice that is made for them. And the innocent lamb gets what they deserve. The innocent lamb gets the punishment. A substitute gets what they deserved. So now we fast forward to the New Testament. And in the book of John, the scripture says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus, that he stepped out from the glories of heaven, that he humbled himself and that he took on flesh, that he was obedient unto death, even the death of a cross, right? And that Jesus, God's only son,
son, right? That's mercy, right? He took on flesh. And in his humanity, he was tempted as every one of us is tempted. He, he, was, he experienced every temptation. And he didn't reject God's righteous standard of the law, but he fulfilled it and he lived it perfect. He lived a sinless life. He obeyed every law perfectly, right? He obeyed it all and he became our perfect sacrifice and he became our intercessor, right? He became that high priest. And on the cross of Christ, Jesus paid for my sin and he paid for yours. And in his sacrifice, a new covenant is initiated. I want you to, to see this, right? This, this is different, right? A new, his sacrifice, right? It instituted a new covenant that was not based on the law. It was not based on those things. It was based on the work of Christ, right? And Jesus, he died on the cross and he cried out, right? My favorite word in the Greek, y'all know it, hopefully. Yeah, there's some people know it, right? To tell us that. So we read in, in, in John chapter 19, uh, in verse 30, we read these words, right? Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. To tell us that the work was done. Jesus died on that cross and he cried out, it is finished. Look at this quote uh, from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, here he stands. Clothed not now with linen ephod, not with ringing bells, nor with sparkling jewels on his breastplate, but arrayed in human flesh he stands. His cross, his altar, his body, and his soul, the victim, himself, the priest. And lo, before his God, he offers up his own soul within the veil of thick darkness, which has covered him from the sight of men. Presenting his own blood, he enters within the veil." sprinkles it there and coming forth from the midst of the darkness he looks down on the astonished earth and upward to expectant heaven and cries it is finished that for which you looked for for so long it's fully achieved it's perfected forever Matthew's gospel chapter number 27 we see another beautiful truth right Jesus cries out the scripture says with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And look what happened next, right? Remember, all this time, right, there's a, a veil that has separated sinful man from the holiness of God. There's a veil. And if you were to enter in that veil, uninvited, if you were to enter into that place, if you were to enter into there, and it was not the day of atonement, and even on that day, it was only the high priest. And the only time that the high priest, the only way that Aaron could enter into that place is if a bull had been sacrificed for his sin. And here we see in this this passage, right? In verse 51, it said, behold, the veil of the temple, right? That it was torn in two, right? From the top to the bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. We see in this moment, right? That the veil that was separating the holies of holies, that it is no longer there and access has been granted. See the blood of Christ and what we read, the author of Hebrews teaches us that the blood of Christ, that it was sufficient, that it was enough. And that it was only the blood of Christ, right? And the way to the holies of holies was open for all men. It was open for the Jew. It was open for the Gentile. There was access that was granted. And when we read Jesus in John 14, 6, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, right? Access is granted by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Man, there's a lot that we could say about that. But the question that has wrecked my heart this weekend, the question that has stirred in my, my mind as I've read these last chapters of Exodus and as I've read of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, as I've read of this day of atonement and all that was perfected in the cross of Christ, as I've read 
of the careful way that they would have to enter into the holies of holies. So I've read of all those things. And then I've thought about the access that was provided to me. My heart said, what are you doing with the access that I've given you? How are you handling that? Right? What are we doing? Man, it's costly. What are we doing with the access that God has given us to the Holy of Holies, right? To be able to commune with him, right? And as I thought about my life, as I thought about maybe the average life of people that profess Jesus, and I just want to confess, and sometimes my access and the way that I respond to that looks more like apathy than it does all to the God that has provided it. The way that we, how we spend our time, the things that we, that we do, right? And I don't know about you, but I got up this morning and I said, I want to spend some time in prayer. And I found myself in the midst of that prayer time distracted. There were moments that my mind was shifting and I thought, God, you've provided all that. How do we approach the very throne of God? Hebrews chapter number 10. I'm going to give you some scriptures that I believe give us some indications of how we live in light of the great sacrifice. And all these verses may not be on the screen, but I want to start with verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 10. And it says this, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And I want you to understand something. When he sat down at the right hand of God, he sat down because the work was done. It was paid in full to tell us that there is nothing more to be offered. There's no more sacrifices. There's no more offerings. There's none of those things. And, and, and he says this. Look at verse. Let's go down to verse Let's go down to verse 17 because it's just a good reminder, right? He says, after those days, verse 16, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds. Man, isn't this good news? And when it's finished, it means it's paid. Our sins and our lawless deeds are past. Right? There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that, that, that does good to my heart. When you start living like that, right? And then he's going to tell us because our sins have been paid for, because this is the reality, right? He says, there's sins I will remember no more. Now where there's forgiveness of these things, there's therefore no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, so here's all that's been provided to us. Here's all that God has accomplished. There's access that's been given to the very throne room of heaven. And then the author of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil. And I want you to understand that the access that we have is no longer this veil that was torn, but it is his flesh, right? It is the, 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 the blood of Christ and his body that was broken for us, right? Here's this picture. He says, we have confidence. So here's the first thing I want you to remember. Access is granted. So enter with confidence, right? We can come with confidence. We can come 
knowing that it's not our righteousness, that it's not whether we've performed some kind of ritual or whether we've done those kind of things. It's not whether or not uh, the priest has taken off the fancy priestly garments that he's been given and that he's put on the other garments that he's been instructed to. Because for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are in him. And, and the scripture says that we are clothed in his righteousness. And so we can confidently, right? We don't have to worry like, can I come into the presence of God? Because Jesus has given us access. Jesus says, hey, access is granted. Come with confidence. So now we enter the holies of holies. Look at verse 21. It says, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Right? Access is granted. He says, listen, we can come with conviction. We can come with assurance. We can come knowing that the blood of Christ is enough, that it was through his shed blood, that, that our past is forgiven, that whatever it is that the devil wants to remind you of and say, you know, you're not worthy. You're not worthy to come into the presence of God. You're not worthy to do those things. What about this? What about this? I want you to understand something. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. And he says, you have access, not because of your works, but you have access because of what I've done. So you come with conviction. And then he says in verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He says, listen, this hope that we have in Christ, in Hebrews 6, it says that it's an anchor to our soul. He says, listen, we come and we hold fast this confession of our hope for he who promised is faithful. That's what we've been seeing, that we have a God who is faithful. We have a covenant-keeping God. We saw the promises that he made Abraham. We, we see how God is working to fulfill and complete his promises, that we can trust him. He is faithful. Our hope is anchored not in ourselves, but in the work of Christ. He calls us to stand fast. Access is granted. The next verse, he says, listen, come considering. I, I want to challenge you with this today. I, I want you to see what he says. He says, listen, verse 24, access is granted. Come considering. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Listen, we need to... How long has it been since we approached the throne room of heaven with confidence and we've come in and we said, you know what, God, I know that in my brokenness, I know that, that in all the things that I've done, that you've saved me, that you've redeemed me, that you've clothed me in your righteousness. And God, now you want to use me as part of your church, right? The church is not this building, right? We, we, we should be careful in how we talk. Listen, we don't come to church. The church came here this morning and they gathered. And when they gathered, there were things that were supposed to be taking place. There were things that we should have prepared for beforehand. And when we leave. I want you to understand we're still the church. Then we're to consider how we could spur one another along, how we could encourage one another. You know, I received texts this week that had Bible verses and had encouragement daily. And when we get those kind of things, we say, you know what? Consider how you could spur one another along. How can I come into the house of God? And how can I use the gifts and the talents and the things that God has given me to encourage one another along? How can I use my cell phone to call somebody this week and encourage them? How can I send a message? What can I do to be part of what God is doing. So he said, let us consider. Listen, access is granted. Let us come considering. And here's something beautiful in verse 25. He says, don't forsake. He said, listen, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Right? Listen, we've never been designed to do this thing alone. We've never been designed to be isolated in the midst of uh, the, the Christian walk. Right? That we are a body of believers. Right? And we come together 
And that's what he says, right? Access is granted. You can come collectively and and corporately. You can come together and you're going to grow in the body of Christ and with other believers in ways that you will not grow alone. There are things that are going to, you can be in God's word, but here's the thing. And you might say, hey, I've heard people say, you know, they talk to people and I say, hey, I'd love for you to come to church. And they say, you know what? I'm a Christian and I can be a Christian without coming to church. And they may be right. They may be right. There may be some truth, but I'm going to tell you something. If you're a Christian, I believe God's going to put in you a desire to come to church. And you might say, well, you know what? I don't have the church did this. Somebody in the church hurt my feelings. Listen, I want you to look at the cost that Jesus paid so that you could come to church. I want you to understand the cost that Jesus paid so that you could approach the very throne room of heaven. And yes, you may be able to not come to church and still be a Christian. You may be able to not go home today and still be married. But you see how it works in your marriage. You see how it goes if you decide to live like that. Because God's called us this. And he said, there's something, there's something special that happens when God's people come together. There's something special when the people of God come together and they open the word of God. There's something special when the people of God don't just come together on Sunday morning, but they say, you know what? We're people. We're, you're my people. <laughs> Congratulations. We're, we're our people. Y'all are like, man, I could have picked some, like, you look at me and you're thinking, I don't know about that. Right? But we're family. Listen, and when we come together and we do life together, then we walk together and we're disciple together. And I'm not just talking about, hey, I had coffee one time with this person. I'm saying, hey, listen, we're, we're embracing this call that we're part of each other and that we walk together and we worship together. We're strengthened together. We're encouraged together. When I come into this place and I see people that are suffering, worship God. And when I see people that have lost family members and when I see people that are struggling and hurting and they're praising Jesus, there's something that happens inside of me, right? There's something that encourages me and it reminds me, right, that my hope is not in this world. It reminds me that there's better days coming. It reminds me, listen, we come together. We cling to our anchor. Our heart is strengthened together. We do life with one another. This is a place God's people come, and we come not to the temple, but we come as the temple. And listen, he has chosen. I thought it was crazy that he chose to dwell in the tabernacle with them, right? That they would come into the holies of holies. It's even crazier that the Spirit of God would choose, that God would choose to live in us, and that we would be the temple of God, right? That we would, that we would take wherever we are, right? And there's a holiness, right, that we should pursue. Yeah, we're under grace. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but in light of all that he's done, man, we should live for him. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. Man, how could we do that? You know, I'm going to close with just this thought and. I prayed about preaching Exodus 34 and I couldn't quite get away from just this picture of of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. But in Exodus 34, we read how Moses had gone up the mountain and Moses would come out from being in the presence of God and we would read that his face would shine, that it would, that it would reflect, right, the glory of God and that Moses would, would, would take this veil, right, and he would cover his face because he didn't want them to know when that had worn off, right? He, he didn't want them to, to see that time. He wanted them to see he'd been with the presence of God, but he didn't want that time to wear off. And I'm convinced that sometimes we come to church and we put on our best and we do all these kind of things and we do our best to look like we've been in the presence of God. We do our best to have those kind of things, but what we do is we really, by our actions, are content 
to live off of other people's time in the presence of God. That we might get around somebody that's worshiping. That we might get around somebody that's praising God. That we might get around somebody that's obviously been in his presence. And I want you to understand something. We are not a group of believers with a priest. We are a priesthood of believers. That if you've been born again and bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that you've been granted access to the very throne room of heaven. And it's time that God's people are not content to live off of other people's blessings, but that would be people that say, you know what? I'm going to go up the mountain. I'm going to go into the holies of holies. I'm going to spend time in the presence of Jesus. And then what we see is there's, a, there's something beautiful that takes place, right? Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3, he said that, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So he says you're going to enter into the presence of God. You're going to learn more about him. You, you, he desired that collectively that these people would know the love of Christ, but then he said it surpasses knowledge. You can never know it all. And so every day we lean into the presence of God and we learn more and we know more. And for eternity we'll still be doing those same kind of things, right? 2 Corinthians 3 speaks of Moses and his, uh, the, the way his unveiled face or his veiled face was. But then 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, one verse and we're done. It says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, right? And so here we are, people who can be in the presence of God. And there ought to be something about our lives that reflect his glory, that reflect our time in his presence. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter five. He said, he, he said, let your light so shine before men. He said, listen, there should be a way. And we come together as the body of Christ. And the goal should be for every one of us, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, that we might encourage one another, that we might spur one another along, that you might walk in this place. And I encourage you, I want you to pick five people that this week you're going to encourage. Five people that you say, you know what? We're the church. The church is not uh, done when this building, you know, empties today. The church is just beginning because we're going on mission for the glory of his name. And I want you to pick five people that you say, you know what? I'm going to encourage all week. I'm going to spur them along all week. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask God considering, listen, and I'm going to approach him considering, God, what is it that you would have me to do so that I could encourage people in their walk with Christ and I could spur them along? And if you remember what the scripture said, to love and good works. And then Jesus said, hey, here's how it's going to look for my people. He said, you're going to let your light so shine before men that when they look at you, that they would see what? You're what? Your works, right? Your good works, right? And then instead, was it was glory coming to them? No, he said that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So as the church gathers, they recognize that, listen, access has been granted. So we're not going to take that lightly. We're going to come into the presence of God alone and together. Once we've been in the presence of God, it's our desire that we might come out of the presence of God, reflecting the image of God, that people might know that we've been with Jesus. Listen, that they might see that in our lives and that we might spur one another along, that we might encourage one another along, that we might encourage them to do what? Share love and good works. And Jesus said, when you do those kind of things and you're living for the, for the glory of God, that they'll see those good works, that they'll glorify their, his father who is in heaven and will see God do things that we can't imagine because God can do greater things, listen, than we can ever 
ask or think. God desires. I mean, there's a power. Scripture says the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us, right? And he wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we can even ask or think. And it happens in simple ways. It happens by us being people that will walk in obedience to his word, that will not take lightly the access that we have and that we will live according. And so we want to worship God together. I want to pray for us. I want to invite you, if you're here uh, today and you've never trusted Jesus for salvation, you've never looked upon the cross of Christ and said, you know what, when Jesus died on that cross, I don't, I, it's bigger than my mind can fully understand, but in, in his death, it counted for me. That Jesus stretched his arms out, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he was the perfect sacrifice. And when he was offered, right, that there was no longer any requirement, there was no more sacrifice that was ever needed. And that when we trust and believe in that finished work, when we believe in what Jesus has done on the cross, that somehow God credits his righteousness and he clothes us in his righteousness and we have access to God. We're made right with God. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus, simply to believe on his name. Scripture says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord, that he's in charge and not us, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that we could be saved. I want to invite you to call on his name today. And maybe for some of us, we've been taking lightly the access that we have to the very throne room of heaven. And it may be that today we need to begin and we need to, to repent of that, right? It may be that we say, we recognize that and we say, you know what? No more. No more. I'm going to pursue. I'm going to run with confidence to him. Father, have your will and way in our lives. God, if there's needs in this room, God, I pray, God, that they would, God, that we would recognize, Lord, that we can have confidence, Lord, that we can boldly approach the very throne room of grace, Lord, that we could find mercy in our time of need, Lord, that you would, uh, you would, God, just call us to something greater, God, to live, Lord, as light in the midst of this world, in Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand this morning and just be obedient?